The Pace Line is supported by LAL Cycling. The Coast is Calling. LAL Shore Collection embodies the spirit and style of the California Coast. All LAL products are crafted right here in Southern California for shipment worldwide. And the Pace Line is brought to you by Health IQ. You ride your bike, you stay in shape, you deserve lower life insurance rates. Head over to their website, healthiq.com forward slash paceline, and find out how much your riding can save you on premiums. Now on to the show. Politics and the Pace Line, we talk about two of our favorite bills concerning trail access and stop signs. This is a law that grants new rights to cyclists. Um, yeah, that's, yeah. that's popular like the flu. <laughs> You know, so, I mean, I can see just all sorts of groups that we never anticipated coming out to fight this. And we hear from a bike maker with a thing for Ty and Tennessee. We have had a conscious approach. Um, it's it's not the most profitable approach. You know, we could have run off and, and had some foreign shop build our bikes um, years ago. And, you know, our bottom line at this moment might have looked better Line, the podcast on two wheels, show number 58. Hello, everyone. Thanks for finding our show. I'm Michael Houghton, part of this a rolling group of three we call the Pace Line. With me is uh, Patrick Brady of Red Kite Prayer. Not with us uh, for this show is Eldon Fatty Nelson, MIA. We don't know where he is. He leaves no trace. He just disappears, goes away. Uh, he's in hiding. So we're sending out a search party right now. If we find him in the middle of the show, we will certainly incorporate them. Uh, again, thanks for finding the Pace Line. Of course, you can find us on uh, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, uh, SoundCloud. Red Kite Prayer is a very popular place to go find this show and make comments on it. We encourage you to do so. Of course, if you do uh, find us on one of those search engines like iTunes, please do us a big, huge, fat favor and give us one of those five-star ratings. Tell us we're great. Not only is that good for our ego, but it's uh, great because we can show advertisers or potential advertisers that, hey, we've got a great show and people think so. Again, Fatty not with us, but uh, Patrick Brady is here, part of uh, the RKP publishing team, um, chief writer, chief publisher, salesman, does it all for RKP. Uh, Patrick, uh, good to hear you. Good to see you. <laughs> Finally saying something. Yeah. Hi. Good to be here. Hi. Yeah. Hi. Yeah. And still recovering, I imagine, from the uh, less than sweet, super sweet water event in Sonoma County, part of that Grasshopper series. Um, I'm feeling more like a human being now, I'll say. It was an especially hard event. I mean, it's not that much longer than Old Kaz, and it actually has less dirt than Old Kaz. But I was so shelled when I got to the finish. We'll have to post a, a very brief video that Miguel recorded of me coming across the line. Um, the look in my eyes, well, it, it was exactly how I felt. It was just so difficult. It was cold, uh, between 45 and 55 the whole day, uh, ranged somewhere between misting and an absolute downpour. There was fog out on the coast. It was a day for the, I don't even know what it was for, but it was mm -hmm. a day for the ages. Yeah. 
How, how many do you have a guess on percentage that finished? I'm, I'm going to guess that most people, the vast majority, finished. Now, there oh. were two options. There was an all-road option that was 78 miles, and there was the old CAS version you know, with dirt, which was supposed to be 70 miles. I got 69, I think, or 68. Mm-hmm. Uh, 30 people did, finished anyway, uh, the road version, and 91 finished the old CAS version. Nice, actually. Yeah, I mean that's a good effort. Yeah, the the pictures from the event made it look not not kind at all. Uh, nothing like what we had last a year ago. I, I did the event and it was beautiful out. Um, but that that can happen, Sonoma County. I mean, especially yeah. this time of year, you don't know what you're going to get. You know, the thing that amazes me is I've often kidded that my idea of a good time is a little skewed. I'm a cyclist, right? You know, relative to the rest of the world, I'm out on the shallow end of yet another bell curve. But for whatever reason, like I might not have gone out on Saturday for just a ride in those conditions. Mm-hmm. But, you know, metaphorically speaking, pin a number on and I can't wait to get out there. And it's been a long time since I've gone that deep getting to the finish. Yeah, uh, I could probably have hydrated and eaten better. I wasn't bonking at the finish. I was still going very hard. But there's something about... You know, the worse you make the conditions, the more the more stoked I get. Yep. Well, and it's the, it's the reason, it's the connection we all have with cycling is we don't do this because it's easy. We do it because it's damn hard, and we all know it. We all have that when we look at each other after an event or when we're talking about events over beers, we all have that same understanding of what, what we've been through, that deep, dark, hard place um, that we kind of uh, – somehow enjoy and and that's why we do that's why it's cycling yeah i i, I think that if if cycling uh wasn't already taken or it was taken as a word we would have chosen a uh an appropriate cuss word to describe <laughs> what this is that we do that's fair i'm, uh, I'm, I'm okay with that let's get on to some uh legislation some, yeah you know it's it's that time of year the what is this the 115th congress that's in session i think right now and of course, that means bills, and that means we have stuff to, to watch out for and to to be apprised of regarding our activity, biking and cycling. And Patrick, you've been following the Human Powered Travel and Wilderness Act. What yeah. is the latest on it? Well, the big news is that there's now a House bill, HR thirteen forty nine, that was introduced by Tom McClintock, a Republican here in California. And so, as I understand it, this is the House version of what. Uh, Hatch and Lee introduced in the Senate. And, you know, it's it's important because of a couple of things, I think. You know, it says pretty much the same thing as S3205, but, you know, this has been brought in by uh, a California congressman, and he's from an area that, you know, while there used to be mining there in terms of, you know, gold and other precious metals, there really isn't any natural resource, um, uh, you know, mining or, or any other. Uh, uh, you mean any more activity that would, would uh, a lobbying effort that would get in the way or make an effort to try and establish ground in some of these wilderness areas like you have in Utah. I mean, Utah, you have a situation where there are definite economic interests uh, that collide with outdoor activities. 
Right. Is that and, what you're kind of driving at? Yeah. And you can't, yeah, you can't claim that, you know, someone wants to strip mine, you know, the west side of the Sierra. That That's just, that's not really an option there. You know, you don't have, you know, gas prospecting or anything else. You know, uh, there's there's no oil. There's, there's nothing that people are going to go after. You know, most of the gold has been gotten out of those hills. And so now, you know, the big thing there is that it's much harder to make the case that, oh, this is a, a backdoor effort, you know, for these uh, companies that want the natural resources. Um, this really is about restoring uh, the permission to use these lands to what it once was. Mm-hmm. And of course, I'm going to circle back to the theme I, I've had since Senators Hatch and Lee introduced these bills, and that's the environmental records of the people that are behind both pieces of legislation. With Lee and Hatch, they have a very poor record for and in environmental causes, and McClintock is just plain terrible. I mean, the League of Conservation Voters gave him a 0% score last year and a 4% lifetime score for his record on voting on environmental causes. And my only point here is that, you know, for the SDC, the Sustainable Trails Coalition, the real the real effort behind this legislation is gosh, couldn't they find some better champions for their bills? Some people are going to give it a good chance of surviving. Now, the big change since I probably since we last talked about this, Patrick, is the fact that we now have a Republican as president who would likely go along with whatever comes out of Congress if it does come from the McClintock-Lee-Hatch, you know, effort. So they've got that going for them. And and, I, and overall, as far as the molding and the crafting of the bill, the STC and the folks, the, envi- the mountain bike folks and the environmental folks who are interested in seeing this, they need to stay on top of this as it makes its way through the committee hearings, make sure that the language they want to see in it stays in there and that these economic interests that we brought up, mining and prospecting and land grabbing and what have you, they do, do, that that type of language does not get written into these bills uh, and get slipped in like we see happen uh, with so many bills in Congress. So that you would mean just the, be my the eleventh kind of hour word of warning. Here. Yeah, the eleventh hour amendment. Yeah, yeah. I, I hear you that. I, I hear that. Um, it's worth noting that McClintock put this forward because of local constituents. Okay, a local mountain biking club uh, in Placer County approached him and asked him to support it. So this wasn't, you know, STC casting about for some warm body to help us out, you know, and McClintock was just the first guy to step forward. No, this was his local constituents going to him and asking him to support something for them. Mm -hmm. So I think that's really significant. Yeah, McClintock does have a good, strong voice. He, I'll give him this. I mean, I don't agree with his politics all the time, but he's very good at, at messaging and getting his word out there. And even though, you know, in this state, as a Republican, he's got a, a tough road, um, he does a good job, actually, at getting on talk shows, getting in the press, promoting what he feels is right. Um, and so I, I think on that sense, the, the mountain bikers have picked up an, an ally, and they just got a be careful and just watch the bill as it makes its way uh, through Congress this this year. Okay, um, more legislation. We're going to talk more bills and laws. Yeah, and this this involves something we've talked about on the pace line before, and that's the rolling stop. And here in California, 
an assemblyman, Jay Obernolte of Hesperia, another Republican, by the way. Actually, he's teamed up with a Democrat out of San Francisco, Phil Ting. They've introduced a measure that would allow bicyclists to treat stop signs as yield signs. So they'd proceed with caution if conditions are safe. Uh, Obernolte, the, you know, the champion of this bill, is a cyclist. And he says, you know, that with cyclists, as we know, the loss of momentum causes us to spend a substantially longer amount of time in an intersection, and that creates a dangerous situation. The longer it takes for a cyclist to pass through an intersection, the greater likelihood that they'll be hit by an oncoming vehicle. Um, I completely so, agree. Yeah, I, I agree too. The, 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 so he has introduced a bill that would make the stop sign in California more of a rolling stop or treat it as a as a yield sign. And some of this kind of grew out of a situation in San Francisco that we covered on the pace line where cyclists were being ticketed for doing the rolling stop and there was a movement there locally with the, the stop with in. The, <laughs> yeah, with the the stop in is what they but the board of supervisors actually proposed legislation that would have said Look, the rolling stop is legal in San Francisco. It ultimately got held up, but this, obviously, with the with the assistance of Phil Ting out of San Francisco, is a response to some of that, and the fact that you know Idaho has had a rolling stop bill since the '80s, and they've shown there studies have been done that it's actually safer in in Boise to ride than it is like in a comparable city like Sacramento. That there are fewer injury-related crashes involving cyclists, uh, and it's being chalked up to or has been chalked up to the fact that they have a rolling stop bill, or a rolling stop law, I should say, in, in Idaho that allows cyclists to, to yield. Now, they, they still have to stop at stop lights, and the bill here in California would stay the same, say the same, that is, mm-hmm. that stop lights must be obeyed, that this does not apply to traffic lights, but stop signs would become yield signs. I guess, Patrick, the, the bugaboo here is that you know if if motorists hold one thing over our head regarding our behavior, um, is is that they they that we fail to stop at stop signs. They say we don't obey the law. You guys don't obey the law. That's what they give us all the time. Yeah. So yep. I, the question is, do we have the clout here, or are they just going to shake that in our face and say this is why this bill should be defeated because? These cyclists are outlaws. They never obey the law. We shouldn't allow them to, to get away with this. Well, I think what we have going on here is a thriller. It's not Hitchcockian, but it's something that you're going to have to watch all the way through to the end. Because I really don't know which way this is going to go. On one hand, this is California. You know, if anybody's going to be able to pull off passing a, a, a law like this, it ought to be us. Okay. But on the other hand, this is a law that grants new rights to cyclists. Um, yeah, that's, that's popular like the flu, (laughs) you know? So, I mean, I can see just all sorts of groups that we never anticipated coming out to fight this. So I don't for a second hold my breath that this is just going to sail right through. It's going to meet some opposition. Who knows? I mean, I love Governor Moonbeam, but you know, I could see him putting this down. He vetoed the three foot law twice. Right. So... There's no reason to think that we're on the verge of getting the Idaho stop here. Um, And, and, you know, will it become the California stop once again if it does pass? Um, (laughs) You mean as opposed to the Idaho stop? Right, right. It's been called the California stop all along, but that I guess maybe it'll have to be the Idaho stop if it's legal. 
Right. <laughs> well, well, it'll be another piece of legislation to watch. We're in the season, folks, of uh, paying attention to bills and what our lawmakers are up to and how it affects our ability to ride, whether that be on trails or on the roads. All right. Cool. Uh, coming up next, we have a couple of cool interviews, one with a very tall man who is a big deal when it comes to bicycle maintenance and advice and other things, and another from a giant in the Thai bike end of the biz. That is next on The Pace Line. We've been talking about Health IQ and how they are helping people to source better rates on life insurance. Recently, they updated their site with new insurers and the ability to serve more people. They've got special rates for cyclists, of course, and runners and triathletes, but also vegans and other health-conscious people now. We've mentioned they have quizzes, and these aren't just for fun. If you score elite on a quiz for a specific lifestyle, that can earn you a further discount on your life insurance. They've also replaced BMI with waist to hip ratio, which is a far better predictor of cardiovascular disease when it comes to athletes. Additionally, they replaced the LDL to HDL ratio with triglyceride to HDL ratio for people on low carb or paleo diets because that's a better predictor of cholesterol health. Amazingly, they will not take into account one incidence in a family history if you are otherwise healthy. It's like a get out of jail card. In other words, if one person in your family has had cancer or diabetes, they won't ding you for it. Finally, they can also get better rates for those with runner's heart or hypertension. Check them out at healthiq.com slash paceline. The Pace Line, the podcast on two wheels. Michael Houghton, Patrick Brady here. Uh, Eldon Fatty Nelson is uh, absent this week, but, but we're, we have a search party out for him right now, so we hope to find him anytime soon. If we if we find out where he is, we'll send a smoke signal to everyone or something like that. Uh, again, uh, we're into our interview segments now, and um, Patrick, this is a this is a great one. Uh, a guy I read, I wouldn't say religiously, but anytime I see material from him. Um, I usually will spend some time reading what he has to say, especially when it has to do with tubeless tires set up. He's really keen on that stuff. Um, but a great guy, Leonard Zinn, you got to talk to recently. Yeah, Leonard and I go back a pretty fair way because of his uh, time as a journalist. But, you know, I mean, he's one of these guys who is a veritable renaissance man. I mean, he started out as a great racer, you know, U.S. national team, you know, went on to start building bikes and has been with Velo News now 20-ish odd years, maybe 25 years at, at this point. It's been a long time. And, you know, yeah, his byline is one you can trust. If he's written about something, he's given it some real thought. You know, he, he's been very thorough in his work. And, uh, you know, being at press events with him has always been really enjoyable because he does bring something extra in terms of the questions he'll ask. Uh, but... You know, uh, a couple of years ago, I was at an event and we rolled out for the ride and he rolled out with the C group, the slower guys who were going to take it easy. Normally they make that that ride for uh, for some of the Asian uh, journalists who smoke. Um, 
But I was like, <laughs> Leonard, where were you? And uh, he's like, well, I've got this heart thing and I can't really go hard. And, you know, come to find out, uh, he's got a pretty serious arrhythmia. Um, started, well, as we'll find out in the, uh, in the interview, it started on a climb one day. But the upshot is that uh, he's been dealing with a, a bunch of doctors and trying to chase this thing. And out of it came a book that he co-wrote with Chris Case and Dr. John Mandrola. And it's called The Haywire Heart. It's from Velopress. And I'm in the bit, midst of uh, reading it myself because I have a slight heart arrhythmia. You know, Leonard, with your history at Velo News, I think most of our audience is probably familiar with you as an author. Uh, you know, certainly your, your technical reporting for Velo News. But your history in the sport is a good deal deeper than that, uh, even beyond just being a, a frame builder. If you would share with our readers, you know, your background as an elite athlete. Well, I was on the U.S. national cycling team. Uh, this was road. This was actually before mountain bikes even existed in 1980, 80, 81, 82. And, um, yeah, I continued to participate in it. I started my business, Zin Cycles, my custom frame building business in 1982, and definitely stepped back from really hard training, just the amount of time involved for many years while getting that established. And then I had kids and all that. But all the way along, I certainly rode my bike plenty and skied plenty. And then at a certain point, I got really into cross-country ski racing. And for 25 years, I was doing that very heavily as well as in the summer, you know, doing some some racing. And then once my kids were grown, I continued to do the cross-country ski racing, but I also started to do a whole lot more bike racing again. Somewhere in there, in the mid-90s, I did a lot of mountain bike racing, but but uh, then in the mid, so around 2005 or something, I started doing a lot more cyclocross. That was something I'd been pretty into way back in the day before anybody ever heard of it. Top <laughs> 10 in nationals back in 1980. And uh, so here was, was coming back to it. And, and, and you know, it's a, it has the same appeal to me as, as cross-country skiing does, that as you get older, you can continue to get better at something that has a lot of technique involved because you can yes. continue to improve the technique even if your strength is decreasing as you age. So I did that very extensively. And then in 2013, I developed this heart arrhythmia. And since then, I continue to ride, but I uh, no longer race. And I continue to ski too. But I've definitely changed the, the sort of the duration and the intensity of what I do. Let's talk a little bit about how much you've had to dial back intensity. Length of a ride, I mean, you know, a lot of people don't even have the time to ride for more than two hours because of family or job or whatever. But, you know, they'll still go out and ride hard. But, you know, with your arrhythmia, I remember reading previous articles that you've written that you'd really had to dial back your intensity pretty dramatically. What is it you're allowed to do now? Well, I essentially train at zone two, if readers know what that is. Mm -hmm. uh, if I go over 136 heart rate, this is, this is not something any doctor has told me. It's basically from me experimenting. If I go over 136 heart rate, 
especially a few times in a row in a relatively short amount of time, there's a pretty high likelihood that I'll go into the arrhythmia. And, um, and over during the time when I was kind of in the early stages of this, when I was in denial about it, that threshold seemed to be more like at 156 rather than 136. Oof. And but by continuing to pretend that I didn't have a problem and push it and all that, what I seem to have done is trained my heart to have it happen at a lower heart rate. So um, I don't want to continue <laughs> that that training and have it be to where I'm limited to you know 90 or 100 right. or whatever. <laughs> so I just try and avoid having the arrhythmia anymore. And, and I seem to be able to do that fairly successfully by staying in zone two. You know, I have uh, my little card from the CU Sports Medicine that based on my most recent test that shows that my zone two is 118 to 125 heart rate. Okay. And as people, you know, generally know that zone two is a pretty – decent place to train anyway that zone three is sort of a junk zone and and then uh zone four and five or you know intensity interval training that i definitely can't do anymore so uh i mean it sounds almost like you know the the way it started happening at lower and lower heart rates it i mean it sounds kind of like an allergy uh how if you keep getting exposed to say shellfish you know, it takes less and less, eating less and less of it to get the uh, anaphylactic reaction. Yeah, that's an interesting, I never thought of it that way. The way I think of it is we had a huge flood here a few months after I had my, my arrhythmia first time. And um, that there are a bunch of stream beds around here that had always been able to, at least in my lifetime, control the amount of water that came through them. Mm-hmm. And this huge amount of water came through. We got 17 inches of rain in three days, and and all these canyons around here were flooding like mad. And the rim stream bed could take it and take it and take it to a certain point, and then finally, it would just break out and cut a new cut a new stream bed. But then the next time, it takes considerably less of a flood. That stream bed, that new new pathway already exists. So once the water comes down, it goes back in the old stream bed, but then it takes less of a flood the next time to find that stream bed again. And it's, unless they go in with bulldozers, that new pathway is always there waiting and it takes less with each flood. It cuts it more and more. It's easier for it to go that way. So that's kind of how I see it, you know, electrical current versus a current of water. Yeah. So uh, for our readers, I mean, our, our, actually our listeners, you know, they're all uh, cyclists, you know, and so they've got, I think uh, it's safe to say a pretty fair familiarity, you know, with training zones and the demands of the endurance cyclist. What was it you first started experiencing, you know, when the arrhythmia happened? What was it? What were the particular collection of symptoms that you were experiencing? Yeah, in my case, I was riding up a mountain local mountain right behind Boulder that all cyclists ride all the time called Flagstaff Mountain. And uh, it's, you know, about a 30-minute climb if you're going quite fast. And it's, uh, I was actually, I was 
trying to go really hard. I mean, I was going really hard because I'd just turned 55 a month before I had the Strava paying for the Strava premium thing where, where you not only are looking at the KOMs for everybody, you're looking at the KOMs by, based on weight and by age and all this other crap. And I saw that I'd only ridden since I was 55. I'd only In that month, I'd only ridden Flagstaff once and I hadn't been going particularly hard. And I saw that I had the KOM by one second. I was like, I could go. <laughs> I'm going to put this thing away. <laughs> so I was going up there and I was you know, paying close attention to my Garmin because I've been ridden that climb so many times that I know where I am at every mile marker and all that sort of thing. And so I knew I was at, at about 155 heart rate. And then and then I felt this like skip beat. So I don't know if you've ever had that experience. For me, that's happened to me for decades where but it generally only happens when I'm quite quiet. Like when I'm meditating, mm -hmm. I'll be sitting there and all of a sudden, go, whoa, my heart just stopped. And then I'll kind of wait, is it going to start again? And then boom, you know, there's like this big pause. It's explain, we explain it in the book. It's, it's something called a PAC or PVC, premature atrial complex, or, and it has to do with the, it's actually a premature beat that you don't feel because there wasn't any blood in the heart when the beat happened. And then it's followed by a delay and a big beat afterward. But I never had one of those while exercising, mm -hmm. and I still don't know how it would have happened because once I understood this, the the mechanism for how PACs and PVCs happen, doesn't make any sense that I would have happened while I was exercising. The only time it really can happen is at rest. But anyway, I I felt that and I was like, well, that's weird. I never had one of those while I'm exercising, but I was aware. I was used to the the sensation, and it got me to look at my Garmin. And it said 218. I was like, what? I was just at 155 heart rate seconds ago. Now I'm at 218. How can that be? And so, of course, I'm tapping it and figuring what's wrong with this thing. And, and then and I just keep going hard because I have this good time going. And I'm now on the steepest part of the climb. And, um, and I go another seven minutes and keep looking at that thing. And it just stays there pegged, 215, 218, all in that range. And I thought, you know, it's probably not a great idea to keep going. I should pull the plug on this one and, and you know, call a go in to see a cardiologist because, you know, I have had friends who I was aware that there were people that I used to race with mm -hmm. couldn't anymore because they had heart problems, specifically electrical problems. And I and I thought and, and they'd bug me to do something about, you know, getting checked. And I always kind of, ah, it's not going to happen to me sort of thing. So I was, I was like, all right, I'll stop. And, and then the instant I stopped, my heart rate just came right down to, you know, 90 or something. It was like, oh, God. And then I was kicking myself for having <laughs> blown, blown this good time I had going there. So there's another little little spur road off of Flagstaff, a little bit lower on the mountain that I didn't have the KOM for. So I'm literally two minutes after I, after I had this happen, I went and I sprinted up that and got that KOM. <laughs> and, and then I went on down and I was irritated about not having gotten in this full workout that I planned. So I went and did some intervals in another one of the mountain canyons here. And, and, um, and then later in the day, I called my, I called my primary care physician to ask for a referral to a cardiologist. And they said, well, why do you want the referral? I told them what happened. They said, oh, you need to go to the ER. So then I went to the ER and 
Shannon Sovendahl was there, was the doctor there, and he's the was the team doctor for Garmin Sharp team. Mm-hmm. So perfect guy to have there because you know my tendency, and I think that's not uncommon for athletes, is to think that doctors don't understand them, that they're used to dealing with sick people and they don't. But Shannon definitely knows elite athletes. So so, and he measured this elevated level of troponin in my blood, which is a, a marker that's that they use for determining if you had a heart attack or not. It's a, it's an enzyme that's released when cardiac cells die. And he said, Oh, you got this elevated troponin and you've got to go to the downtown cardiac unit and you can't have your wife drive you. You gotta, you gotta go on the ambulance. I'm like what? I don't think I would have listened to him if it hadn't been. And I, I'm asking him, well, yeah, but it must've just been that I was going hard. And he said, look, I test the the blood of Christian Vandeveld and you know Tom Danielson and all these Garmin Sharp riders after very hard workouts, and I never see troponin in theirs. Wow. In terms of you know big takeaways from this book, I'm working my way through it now. We've got a lot of listeners who've uh, certainly had their 40th. Many have had their 50th birthdays. You know, as somebody who's dealing with this now, what's your advice? What's your big you know? What would you want them to have as their big takeaway? Well, one thing is I don't think you can um, be too early about going and just getting a general workup on your heart done by a cardiologist. I think it's a good idea. A lot of these things, like what's hard for me, may be easier or harder for somebody else. It's not you can't just judge it based on just oh yeah, well you know I'm not I'm not doing what he's doing or something like that. Mm-hmm. First of all, because everybody's an individual and, and, and everybody has a certain propensity based on genetics and their lifestyle and their diet and all this other stuff that comes into it that their previous life, I mean, if somebody was a, was a couch potato or a smoker or something before they discovered cycling or whatever athletic pursuit they're into now, that doesn't get undone. You know, I mean, yeah, that's what Jim Fix thought. He thought that running marathons inoculated him from ever having heart problems and that, you know, it was disproved in a very, in a, uh, couldn't have been more clear. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it got disproved for him. And, and some of these studies that we've done, that we've got in the book, interestingly show that some people that you would think would be extremely low risk of, of garden variety heart disease, you know, hardening of the arteries, thickening of the arterial walls, closing down of arteries, all, all that sort of stuff. A lot of these ultra marathoners actually have that. And you wouldn't think that was possible. And it may be genetics, but it also may be that there's something about what they're doing. The amount of stress that they put their hearts through. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's producing that. And that's something that you can definitely see in when you go to see a cardiologist, you know, echocardiograms and these uh, these scans of your carotid artery to see what that's uh, artery that's very close to the surface. They can see if there's junk in that. And, you know, even an angiogram where they actually go inside with catheters and look around called the catheterization also. Um, and, and just a standard EKG can a lot of times pick up things that you never were aware you had. A lot of people, it won't show anything. I do think that in my case, before I had my, my incident, it wouldn't have shown anything because since then I've had all of the tests done, angiograms and everything else, all my 
my arteries are completely clean, my heart looks great, the ejection fraction is good, all those sorts of things, and I've got this arrhythmia. But in some some people, that arrhythmia can be detected just with an EKG or with a or with a stress test, where essentially it's an EKG while you're running on a treadmill or riding a riding ergometer, and um, that's a takeaway. Another another is to recognize that the stress on your heart is this, just like the stress on, on your whole body is a related to your overall stress. It's not, it's not just what your train, your training is, but if you're, you know, you have stressful things going on at work, work or in your family or whatever, or you're not getting as enough sleep or, or you're eating very inflammatory diet, all those sorts of things. Are, are all stresses or you, you've been ill, you know, and you still think you you got to be out putting in the miles even though you had the flu or have the flu or whatever. Mm-hmm. All those things play into it. Or you've had an injury. You know, I think uh, John Mandrola, the doctor who did the book with us, he, um, he had broken a rib really recently. So he He'd been working a lot. He'd been somewhat sick, and he had this broken rib, and that was paining him, and all these things combined. And then trying to keep up with the group on the group ride, it was just the straw that broke the camel's back. So, so recognizing, you know, like especially if you're really stressed out in your work or whatever, and maybe your solution has always been to just go out and pound yourself on the bike. Maybe a solution might make more sense is to go on an easy ride. You know, everybody knows exercise is really good for you. But it's fairly clear uh, from the recent data that after a point, it stops being good for you. And maybe the opposite is true. And that point will vary depending on what all is go- else is going on in your life. And to react to negative influences by pounding hard athletically may be a, something that you don't want to do after age 50 anymore. <laughs> Yeah, no, I I get you. I mean, it's funny because just yesterday we celebrated the fourth birthday of my youngest. And uh, when he was born, he spent six weeks in the NICU. And it was stunningly stressful. And for the better part of a year, the stress of that and then, you know, some other things that happened in my life, I felt like I just, I couldn't go hard. Like I'd get out on the bike and there wasn't that ability to dig in and go hard. So for a long time, I found myself describing my riding as recharge as opposed to discharge. It's one of those things where I don't, I don't think of myself as someone who listens to his body in any manner that's superior to anyone else. But I felt like I was getting a message and I did listen to it. The interesting thing now for me is that, you know, we're not really sure what it is, but I've got some sort of arrhythmia going and uh, we haven't tracked it down yet. In a one minute EKG, they said, oh yeah, you've got something wrong. I was like, okay. And then they put a halter monitor on me and it came off after two days. (laughs) They said, keep riding, that's fine. They thought it was good that I was gonna keep riding. And um, yeah, after two days, why did they take it off after two days? That was it, just the it fell off. The the adhesive wasn't good enough uh, for my sweat. I guess they'd shaved me and everything, but yeah, I was sitting at lunch and it just dropped off inside my shirt. And so with only two days of data, they didn't have anything. But uh, I'm about to go back into the doctor, and we're supposed to start this process over to try to figure out what's going on. 
the interesting thing for me is that, you know, my, my heart rate doesn't soar, but I get what I call like a butterfly. There's a funny little sort of pause in there, but I can still feel something's going on. That's, you know, that's my reason for being so interested in the book. You know, it's like I'm I'm chasing something and, you know, we just don't even know what it is yet. Yeah. Well, that halter monitor, I, I'm glad you mentioned that because that's something that I didn't mention. It's an extremely great tool. It's a telemetric, essentially a telemetric EKG that you that you wear with you and have it on 24 hours a day. And and it's got a uh, like a little cell phone that comes with it that sends the data to somebody probably in China or something who's looking at it. But it's continually recording the data, but then after a certain period of time, it gets rid of it because there's just so much data coming in. And, and, and there are the buttons on the thing that you can push when you feel something weird. Mm-hmm. And that ensures that they, they then save that segment, and then there will be segments where it triggers the, their computer, and they oh, my God, this guy's got something going on. And then they also automatically save that and often give you a phone call. And um, like I got a phone call in the middle of the night with mine and I picked it up and the woman said, are you okay? And I'm like, <laughs> I was until you woke me sleep. And she said, Oh, well you, your, your heart stopped for over three seconds. So, you know, it, it, it catches things, but also it allows you to select the things that you, where you think oh, that, that's weird the way that feels. And then, and then you actually have an EKG of that thing that you go into your doctor and here that thing is then, you can look at that and the doctor can explain what it is and maybe it's not a problem, but you can, you can see what it is. And, and yeah, it's a, it's a great tool. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like the lap button on your GPS unit, you know, you know, it's a little marker, it's a bookmark, check this out. And unfortunately, yeah, I never got to a point where I was like, Oh, I should hit it now. We've still got some work ahead of us for me, but I really appreciate this. Uh, I look forward to getting through the entire book and I wish you lots of luck with them finally figuring out uh, a treatment for what you have. Good grief. So, Leonard, thank you so much for the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Patrick. Again, that was Patrick with Leonard Zinn, the technical writer for Velo News. Man, he holds a bachelor's degree, too, in physics from Colorado College. No wonder I love uh, reading his stuff so much. Uh, And he's very patient with his with his readers, they will ask him over and over about compatibility questions. Can I run a campy cassette with a Shimano? Blah blah blah. Could I <laughs> yep. go? And he's really he takes time all the time to answer those questions. And really glad also to hear him get out in front of a very important issue regarding uh, the most important muscle we have when it comes to cyclists, and that's our hearts. Uh, pay attention, folks. If you feel anything wrong going on with the ticker, um, not only pick up Leonard's book. But go see your doctor, your cardiologist about that issue because you want to keep that stuff straight. Very, very good stuff. Thank you, Patrick, for bringing that uh, interview with Leonard. Yeah. Uh, now, uh, on to something also near and dear to your heart, speaking of hearts, is NABS, the North American Handmade Bike Show, which you uh, serve as a chief judge. Yep. Uh, in addition to you try to be a publisher for RKP and keep up with all the news that's happening there, you also are overseeing... Uh, all the competitions that are going on at NABS. And again, 2017, although you're going to Salt Lake City, which Utah has been in the spotlight for all the wrong reasons, still we're going to start to now focus on the show and what is happening at NABS this year. Yeah, well, I mean, it's going to be a great show. I've had the good fortune to see a bunch of bikes. They're going to be on display there. 
Um, I've also received a number of emails because of my duties as chief judge. Every time somebody has a question about rules, they get in touch with me. And so I've been hearing about some of the bikes as well. This is going to be, you know, they all are really great shows, but this one is going to have a couple of high points that uh, will make it truly a memorable show among many memorable shows. Um, you know, I don't want to say best ever or something silly like that because you end up having to do that every year. But mm. uh, anybody who has any ability to get to the show this year really ought to. Uh, it's a really fantastic collection of builders and a number of builders have just pulled out all the stops in the quest to do something truly exceptional. And, uh, you know, I can't I just I can't wait to get in there and see the stuff in person after seeing the photos. And like, you know, I'm hearing of some special preparation that some of the guys have done for the awards, you know, the competitions they're entering. Um, it's, you know, it's going to be a, a long weekend. I end up being on duty about 18 hours a day every day I'm there. And uh, I don't mind it at all, but I get home and I'm not really ready to jump back into daddy duty. I just want to go to bed. Yeah. <laughs> So, but there's some terrific eye candy come and look, folks. We know that look the state of Utah has been under fire over uh, Bears Ears National Park um, and the situation there with the governor and NABs. Look, they there's virtually nothing they could have done to, to pull out of Utah. I'm sure they probably would have liked to distance themselves from the issue. But well, now this have. comes down. They, yeah, and they have they put they out have. a press release saying Absolutely. that they weren't down with it. But right. you know, the thing here is, and you know, it's worth noting, you know, they're no different from outdoor retailer. They've got signed contracts. They have to be there this year. Outdoor retailer has not actually left Utah yet. Right. You know, it's uh it's in the future that they won't be signing new contracts. So they're they're not uh supporting Utah in a way that, you know, other shows have decided not to support Utah. Mm -hmm. Um, this is, this is simply a matter of contractual obligation. You yeah. don't want somebody saying failure to perform. Yeah. And look, the time now has come to, to focus on the builders and the fantastic work they're doing. So let's do that. Look, uh, I think uh, this is in a renaissance right now. The, the small builders are, are experiencing a nice uptick in activity. There's a nice new focus on what they're doing. Uh, so let's enjoy that and celebrate that. And we'll get back to the Bears Ears national thing a little later. We'll, yeah. we'll deal with that. We'll deal with that. Let's, let's focus on the builders. Yeah. Besides, well, I'm in the market. I want to see these bikes. <laughs> I want to see. Yeah. I really am. I'm looking for something in, that's handcrafted, that's done by somebody I know. So I can't wait to see what comes out of, of NABs this year. Well, a bike company that, that won't be at NABs, but we sure do enjoy writing their work. Uh, I'm talking about Lightspeed. Patrick, my first impressions of Lightspeed, at least in a meaningful way, were when I started riding with you in the South Bay. Now, you were on a 7. Yeah. Um, but a lot of my enters and uh, mentors, that is, and people who showed me the roads of the Palos Verdes Peninsula also rode titanium. And a good number of them were on Lightspeeds. The Lightspeed Classic or the Vortex, usually what you would see some of these people on. And many of these men and women worked in aerospace. They were engineers. They were smart riders who could handle their bike. And had a handle on what it took to build a solid frame. Yeah. That thought, that impression always stuck with me. So when I came across uh, the Lightspeed booth at Interbike's Outdoor Demo, I had to have a look. Uh, and again, those machines impressed. Especially the T5 Gravel, a multi-surface rig with a disc brakes. That bike I have reviewed, and you can read that review at Red Kite Prayer. Uh, and at the time, the day I was there, I was introduced to product developer and designer Brad 
Devaney, and his enthusiasm and energy also impressed. So after I was done writing the T5G uh, a few months ago, I got Brad on the phone for a conversation about the Lightspeed line, where it's been, where it's headed, and most importantly, what does the future hold for the material they are known best for, and that is titanium. You know, titanium is, is our mainstay at Lightspeed, and, um, you know, we, we do our best to bring... Uh, the, the frame performance that's needed, and, and that's changed so much over time with the change in, um, you know, the, the stiffness-to-weight ratio of wheels, handlebars, stems, seat posts, saddles. Every, the whole composition has changed so much in the past 30 years that it's drastically changed the performance and the stiffness-to-weight requirement of the frame set. And so that's that's been uh, an ongoing uh, goal for us is to stay focused on what we think is the best formula and the best recipe for a high-performance cycling frame. Mm-hmm. Well, your bikes did leave an impression um, early on, and I'm, I'm glad I've always uh, remembered them and, and glad now to have uh, ridden one. I, I rode the T5 Gravel for about the last month and had a great time in it. Fabulous bike. Uh, you guys, um, like you said, 30 years since your first, I guess, bike actually debuted, which was in Long Beach, the Long Beach Bike Show. Um, and you have another kind of big thing happening in the light speed world. And you're in a new building now, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, back in June of last year, we, uh, we cut the lights off at the old building handed the keys over to our, uh, our next door neighbor of, uh, quite a long time and uh, drove across town to our uh, and started unpacking boxes in a uh, in a, a larger nicer building closer to uh, to what goes on in Chattanooga so we're we're really really happy to be in a a new facility and and um, it's it's been really really good for us the the you know getting the machines back and running and everything calibrated and and back into operational mode happened really, really quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a lot of uh, a lot of help in doing that, and and uh, look forward to what the future brings now. Um, so, like you said, thirty years uh, for Lightspeed. Congratulations on that. And while the company has you know added carbon to the mix over the years, it seems like titanium that you're known and you remain a titanium frame builder first. What is what do you think is the current state? of titanium you know it's at a new level of appreciation uh we we um as a company acknowledged carbon carbon you know if we're going to hang our hat on sound engineering principles let's uh let's acknowledge the performance of car carbon um it's a uh, it's a fantastic material but you just can't deny the uh, the overall toughness durability ride quality, the, all of the positives that titanium brings to the table. Um, it, you know, it's, it's very easily recognized off-road, but on the road just the same. When, you know, there's so many of us and our customers, you know, we use our bikes heavily. We're, you know, it's treated more as a tool than a member of the family. And uh, that's, you know, that's really um, flattering to see how long our bikes have stayed in the market um, over the past 30 years and you know what we continue to freshen up the finish and put new decals or whatever the case may be you know it's it's amazing how well 
and how long a good titanium bike uh, lasts out there in the field. And it seems like this emerging segment we've been talking about, the gravel, the adventure segment, seems just ideal for that for that material. Absolutely, absolutely. You know what we can create uh, in in the launch of the T5G several years ago. Um, I absolutely wanted to break the the titanium is not stiff enough for me stigma. And I think we, we handily accomplished that. That, yeah. that bike is, is not a noodle whatsoever. And um, I, I'm really, really proud of, uh, of the modern titanium that we're producing to what I feel are today's performance requirements. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lightspeed seems almost obsessed about doing everything in-house. Even the, the artisan guys out there, the welders doing steel use other people for dropouts and other parts that they don't want to make. Why does the do-it-ourselves approach work for Lightspeed? Well, you know, it's, it's a real benefit to me. I need to be careful how I answer this. Uh, but it's, it's wonderful to have almost no uh, design constraints. Uh, we, we work really, really hard on, on sound uh, designs that we know are going to work. Um, work well, high durability, super lightweight, whatever, whatever the goal is of the bike, we have that uh, design and manufacturing capability, and, and it's just fun to, to work without those constraints. So, um, you know, in the short time I was away from light speed, I, I worked um, with a sporting goods company that had very high design constraints. You know, we, we outsourced a lot of our tooling. We outsourced a lot of our processing and, you know, you just had to do things an old way all the time. And you weren't able to innovate whatsoever. Hmm. So um, that's, that's a true benefit here at this, uh, at this company is that, you know, there's no ceiling over our heads. We can do uh, pretty much whatever we feel is, is uh, safe and capable and, and that uh, customers are going to find delight and enjoy it and, and uh, maybe recognize some of the innovation within it. Mm-hmm. So take us through your line real quick. How big is the line now? How Do you want it bigger? Is it just right? Where do you stand with that? You know, that's a tough question for me, Michael. I, I don't look at our catalog or our website very often. <laughs> I've got projects all over my desk. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, you know, we've got, um, we've got three or four really, really competitive off-road bikes and various wheel sizes. Um, got away from full suspension uh, for quite some time. And, um, you know, it's a category we've moved away from. We don't see the true benefits of titanium there. Mm-hmm. Um, in the road segment, uh, wow, what a selection we have. You know, it's, it's very price sensitive. Um, and our design and, and manufacturing capabilities allow us a huge range of uh, levels of performance. And, you know, even our entry-level bike has fantastic performance, but we're using straight gauge aerospace grade uh, tie tubing. So that, you know, that per- produces a really, really good bicycle. A lot of our competitors' top-level bikes are straight round titanium tubes. But here within our shop, we actually manufacture some of our tubing. Uh, we can do that on a very, very uh, thin scale or a very thick scale, uh, whatever, you know, whatever type bike we're building. So um, it's it's a lot of fun to work on the puzzle pieces more so than the puzzle. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's that's what we really enjoy doing here. So you're happy with the size of your line right now, or you folks? We really are. We really are. If anything, we've probably got a two, 
you know, a few too many models in there. But I think that's, you know, that, that should always be the case. I want to finish up here quick about um, this whole, you know, there's been a lot of talk about making it in America again. I won't say make America great again, then we'll leave that to some other guy. But, but <laughs> making, making it in America again, bringing jobs back here. In fact, a whole bike company just launched kind of on that premise that they were going to do everything in America. Lightspeed, best I can tell, has hardly wavered from that ideal over the year, that U.S. manufacturing can work and is superior. What has kept Lightspeed focused on that approach? You know, we, we interact with the uh, International Titanium Association. Uh, it's an aerospace organization that, you know, helps us keep our eyes on um, new technologies, emerging technologies, or new uses of the material as, as carbon has increased in aerospace. Um, aluminum has, it hasn't vanished, but boy, has it really reduced. But because carbon and aluminum as materials, they don't get along well, and they have a, a galvanic corrosion problem, most of the aluminum that's gone away has become titanium. And, um, my, oh, my, it's, it's, you know, titanium is strong and alive globally in the aerospace segment. Um, in cycling, we have had a conscious approach. Um, it's, it's not the most profitable approach. You know, we could have run off and, and had some foreign shop build our bikes um, years ago. And, you know, our bottom line at this moment might have looked better. But um, that's just not what we do. You know, there, there are certain operations that are our foundation. They are our core competencies. And we've stayed focused on that. We've been selling that uh, in the markets that love it most and uh, just trying to operate a very good and logical business. Here, here in the States, titanium has not been king. But, um, you know, Korea and other markets, it's been fantastic. It's a luxury item there. And we've, we've continued to... Um, you know, we, we bring in typically more foreign dollars than domestic dollars as a business. Hmm. So, you know, we feel like very, very good citizens in, in how we operate the business. Yep. So, yeah. Well, excellent work, Brad. Uh, good catching up with Lightspeed. We love uh, looking at the line, riding the line. It's a fun bike to ride. Uh, I encourage uh, someone to get on Titanium if they haven't been on one in a while. I think you'll be more than surprised about how well they ride. So, Brad, thanks for being on the Pace Line. Thank you, Michael. Again, that was Brad Devaney, head of uh, product design and development at Lightspeed. Patrick, you have known Brad for a while. Uh, How does he he differ from the many other product designers out there? You know, he really doesn't. I mean, I've known Brad, yeah, about 30 years. We did time in bike shops back in Memphis. And, you know, his his talent, his competence, uh, his imagination were all evident there. There was a time where he broke his mountain bike. Uh, the, the seat stay broke at the dropout and he rigged up this funny little thing using the, the cantilever boss, uh, and, uh, spoke and something out of the, the, uh, the rack eyelet on the dropout to keep it together so that he could get through a race that was coming up that weekend. Raleigh couldn't get him a new frame quickly enough. And it was one of those things that we were all looking at it going, that's genius. And then we were curious, well, will it hold up through the race? And he got through the race just fine. And, and you know, that was kind of the first sign that, oh, yeah, this guy definitely needs to be in grad uh, in engineering school. And 
you know, he's gone on to be, you know, just such an authentic part of what Lightspeed is. Lightspeed was always about Tennessee built titanium. And this guy is homegrown, you know, educated in Tennessee, you know, went to a great engineering school and has been, you know, just an integral part of what Lightspeed has been for, I, you know, probably close to 20 years at this point. He's been there a very long time. And, you know, it's, it's his vision that continues what the Linsky started out with. And he's, you know, he's done right by the brand. I'm, yep. I'm envious that you got to do the interview. Yeah, I, I thought you might be. But uh, again, when I first met Brad, I was like, wow, this is the kind of guy I like running into and meeting. And I'm glad there's people like him in the bike business, a business that has, you know, suffered economically over times. And there can be a lot of long faces at Interbike at times. He was a bright spot. Not only is are his titanium bike shiny, he was a, a, a good spot, a good guy to, to hang around and be around. And by the way, his little rigged dropout thing, that not only lasted one, he told me the story. That not only lasted the one race, he said he raced it by two or three other races. So it held up for a while, that, that spoke holding the dropout to the boss. Amazing. It's a good story. In fact, I, I think I have it on tape. If I if we have a chance, we have a we might try to play it on the pace line, or maybe we'll post it somewhere. Oh, for dude, folks. yeah. If you've got that recorded, we definitely need to get that up. It's okay. such a good story. I wish All we right. had pictures of it. Um, yeah, I walked in the shop one day, and he'd done that, like you know, after hours, you know, getting it ready. And yeah, there were there were races coming up, and he didn't want to miss them. And that's the other thing. Brad is a very fine rider. He was one strong boy back in the day. And, you know, he has continued to be a real athlete. So he's, you know, I, I consider him like a great example of people I meet in the bike industry over and over. He's sort of an archetype, you know, a really consummate athlete, a really intelligent engineer and a complete bike nut. That's why I love this industry. Mm hmm. He could easily be a pace line pick this week, uh, and I guess he sort of is. But uh, in light of that, let's let's move on to our pace line picks. And uh, Patrick, what do you have for us this week? Well, no secret, it's NABs. Uh, for for anybody who can't get there, I mean, if you're within 500 miles of this thing, go, go, go. It's going to be so good. As a matter of fact, I, something we haven't even mentioned is the fact that Mark Danucci is going to give a seminar on building with lugs. And I'm going to help lead him through that. It's going to be sort of a Q&A type format, uh, a little bit of an interview. And, uh, you know, this guy is one of the all-time greats in this realm. Uh, just immensely talented. You know, hasn't built as many frames as a guy like Richard Sachs, but he's been doing it nearly as long. And his skill set is so broad and he's got, you know, such a great understanding of the materials he's working with that, you know, even if you're not hoping to build a frame yourself at some point, uh, just hearing that will be really fun and educational. But if you can't make it to the show, then stay tuned to RKP for our coverage uh, or drop by, you know, cycling tips and check out James Wang's. Uh, I'm mm -hmm. pretty sure James is going to be there and uh, he and I will have to get together for breakfast one morning. So attendance-wise, people can walk up to the show and just and buy a ticket and walk right in? It's oh, not yeah. Like a, yeah, it's right. tickets at the door. Some people have, have pre-bought. There were some options for discounts and whatnot, like if you bought all three days. Um, and certainly there's enough to see there 
if you go for just one day, you're going to be zooming through trying to see stuff and you will miss things. Mm -hmm. But, you know, in the course of two or three days, you can see it all. You can be thorough. You can get your mind blown and then you can fall into the abyss of indecision. Which I'm good with. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, so NABS is uh, Patrick's baseline pick. Mine is um, a product, and it's a trend of sorts I've been noticing a little bit, and that is the idea of uh, gravel forks, forks for drop bar bikes. Fox looks like it's going to release a gravel fork. The Stepcast fork is Fox's hottest cross-country mountain bike fork right now. It was released just last year. And a version of it has been spotted on some gravel bikes. The step casting, by the way, essentially means Fox shaved away material in the inner and lower portion of the fork tubes, creating a a flat section from a few inches above down to the axle. Uh, The reduction of of that fork material allowed Fox to narrow the fork some, both of which equated to weight savings. That is the step casting itself and the narrowing of the fork equaled weight savings. The XC Stepcast weighs just under three pounds. The gravel version seen running around looks similar, except it has stickers that say AX. The travel appears to be somewhere around 30 millimeters, which would put it in the same league as the Lauf Grit. That's that uh, rubber bandish looking uh, gravel fork. And then Lefty, uh, Cannondale's Lefty on the slate also has about 30 mils of travel. Uh, the cross-country step cast goes for about a grand, so that price would seem to be a, a good guess for this AX uh, Fox fork. The pictures uh, of this mystery fork and rumor gaining momentum just in time, of course, for Sea Otter. So a run by the Fox booth at Laguna Seca is in order, Patrick, to see if we're uh, in for more gravel forks, which is, you know, I, I've ridden a couple of them. I don't think you've been on any... Do you have any thoughts about gravel forks yet or whether this makes sense? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's funny when I do these longer, harder events, I don't spend a lot of time out of the saddle. I do some here and there, but you know, so often the climbing is really steep. And so I'm not get I'm not standing up. I'm in a low gear. And so having a fork that would otherwise bob under me out of the saddle isn't as big an objection as it might be on a traditional road bike. But on the descents where, you know, control is just the paramount concern, 30 millimeters of travel could do a whole lot. Um, you know, I, my, my biggest question is kind of weight. You know, is yeah. this going to be um, a full kilo, you know, 2.2 pounds as opposed to 300 grams? Um, I'm, you know, yeah, a little concerned about that or, or maybe the better words curious. But as a... As a development for gravel bikes, given the terrain that I'm riding on, absolutely welcome. Yeah, I've ridden the the Cannondale Slate for a little bit and the Lof Grit on a on an open UP, and you know, it was I, I got it. I, I I get why folks might be attracted to this idea. Uh, obviously, Specialized has gone with it with a shock under the Roubaix. Um, so this seems to be a bit of a movement, try to get suspension onto some of the bikes we like to take off or some of the drop bar bikes. So that is that we like to uh, take off road and we'll be, we'll be looking for Fox's entry. Looks yeah. like an entry, uh, at, uh, Laguna Seca at the uh, Sea Otter coming up in April. Okay. Uh, let's wrap up the pace line with a check back with Patrick. Patrick, what is the latest on uh, red kite prayer? 
So I just posted uh, on Monday a review of the Mazi Evoluzioni, the Evo, yeah. and was really surprised by this bike. It's got a flashy paint job, and I didn't catch right away that they had used uh, Textream material in it, which is a super sophisticated carbon weave that allows you, anytime you use a layer of that, you can pull out some other carbon. The upshot being that this was an extraordinarily sensitive and lively bike. I expected a good bike. I got a great bike. And so that reviews up uh, a neat little bottle cage from uh, Topeak, the Ninja TC Road. Uh, it's a traditional road cage, except for the fact that it's got uh, tire levers integrated into it and a little mount for a mini tool below the bottle cage. And so it's an option for people looking for something like what Specialized has been doing, but may not have wanted to buy it from Specialized. Mm -hmm. So uh, those are two reviews. And then uh, by the time everyone listens to this, my ride report on Super Sweetwater will be up as well. As for me, I too have a pretty fresh review on RKP, uh, that of the Lightspeed T5 Gravel that we talked about earlier in the show. So go to Red Kite Prayer for that. And of course, keep an eye out for our coverage of the North American Handmade Bike Show version 2017. The page line can be found on Red Kite Prayer. Also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Music, and TuneIn Radio. It's a new outlet for us. Your comments and suggestions are always welcome. Thanks again, everyone. We are still looking for fatty. So if you see a guy wandering around looking for his podcast, tell him the pace line has already rolled by. For Fatty and Patrick, I'm Michael Hutton. Get a ride in, be good to each other, and thanks for listening to The Pace Line. <laughs> Off to a great start. <laughs> totally out of practice. <laughs>